<laughs> Come on, it's great. Um, well done, well done, Matt. Um, it's great to see you all here again tonight. If we haven't met before, I'm Will van der Heijden. I'm the associate vicar here. And I'm yeah, really enjoying, I'm, I've got to say, I'm really, really enjoying having the privilege of, of preaching to this series, The Complete Jesus. And um, I was sharing with Tim, our vicar, this week. You know, last week, we did uh, just the, the challenge of docetism, that sense that... Uh, yeah, God was potentially a superhero. He certainly wasn't human. This week, we flipped the script entirely uh, into Arianism, that Jesus was only human. We're playing a kind of theological game of pinball here. One day, we're kicking off the right-hand wall. The next day, we're kicking off the left-hand wall. And hopefully, we're coming in, if you like, to find that central place, the place of tension, where we have a real revelation of the person uh, of Jesus Christ. But we definitely do the hard yards in the office this week, and I've been sweating over this one, um, seriously sweating, because it's just, it's, this is challenging theology. And if you're new here and you're not sure what you think about faith yet, um, you might find someone tonight a little hard to connect with, but I want it to provoke questions in, in you, which are questions that have been asked for millennia. Who is Jesus? We're going to read tonight from Hebrews uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through to 6. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he has made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty in heaven. So he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Well, docetism was this idea that God is kind of some sort of apparition, some kind of superhero that, that he, he, you know, he only makes sense by keeping God's holiness separate from man's sinfulness. If we go right back a few weeks into uh, Tim's analogy of the rescue helicopter with the wire that goes down and the rescue swimmer in the water helping the drowning surfer into safety, the, the, the rescue man in the water needed to be in the water yet still connected to the helicopter to be any earthly good or heavenly use. If, if the helicopter cut the wire, you've just got two drowning men in the water. And yet, if the rescue man sat in the helicopter and started waving at the drowning surfer, then no one was helped. And the Christian message is this unique message that God was both God and made man in order that he could be both rescue helicopter and rescuer in the water. You know, God has come close, and yet God is still God. The problem of docetism was that if God couldn't really suffer, God couldn't really stand in our place. And he certainly couldn't comfort us in our sufferings. And he actually, he was just a superhero who couldn't really love. So this week, we're flipping the argument to explore the Arian heresy. And Arius was a priest who lived in Alexandria in Egypt between 256 and 366. And Arianism has become synonymous with this idea that Jesus was only human. 
Now, what we're trying to do during this series is help you to think about how historic heresies, this one which dates way back into the second century, are still prevalent today. And, you know, when I ask people about who they think Jesus is, they often say, think, like, oh, I think Jesus was just an amazing man. You know, they, they always de-spiritualize Jesus more than they do the docetic work of re-spiritualizing Jesus. So Jesus becomes one of us, and it becomes a moral example. Oh, I love Jesus. He said lots of really interesting things. And, um, you know, we, we hear lots of modern commentators do this. I, I like reading a bit of Russell Brand. I know it might be controversial to you, but I love his, I love his visceral style. And, uh, you know, he loves Jesus. Like, he really is so passionate about Jesus. He's always talking about the character of Jesus. And I love that he loves Jesus, but he doesn't love a supernatural Jesus, you know, from what I read. He, he loves the person of Jesus. And it's easy to fall in love with the person of Jesus, but the danger is we humanize Jesus for him to be no earthly use. He's one of us. He kind of walked amongst us. He had some great moral teaching. In the past, I was involved with a pre-course like the Alpha course, which was called the Life course. And we used to kind of really do vox pops in a big way. Because I think the danger of the church is we become so disconnected from the world, which we're of no heavenly use or earthly use. We're not answering the questions that people are asking in the streets. They're saying, you know, who do you think Jesus is? Nine times out of ten, people would say, oh, yeah, I think Jesus was a historical figure. I think Jesus was a really wise teacher. I'm really interested in Jesus. But very few people say, well, I think Jesus was God. Now, that was really, really unusual. And Arius struggled with this idea. You know, he wasn't a typical kind of non-believer. In fact, Arius had a very high view of who Jesus was. He had confidence in Jesus' miracles and even in Jesus' death and resurrection. He might have even have gone so far as to say, I think Jesus was the Son of God. So you might be wondering then, what's wrong with Arius? Well, just like other heretics, Arius wasn't into opposing Christianity. He was just trying to make Christianity more palatable for certain people. I wonder if you've done that. I kind of remember doing that at school. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Are you a Christian, Vanderhart? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, wow, weird. Well, you know, Jesus is quite cool, you know. I mean, Jesus is actually like, yeah, it's not working for you, is it? Uh, you know, we, we try and make Jesus a bit more palatable. Yeah, Jesus was totally like one of the people, you know. I mean, Christians might be weird, but Jesus wasn't weird. No, that's not really working either, Van der Hart. You know, the thing is, we, we, we try and package Jesus up in a way which we think is going to be okay for other people. And, and to a level, Arius was trying to package Jesus up to make him okay for a group of people too. Contemporary thought in the period was either fiercely polytheistic or fiercely monotheistic. Think for a minute about your Egyptian history. Egyptians were famous for having this massive pantheon of gods. There was just a huge array of gods for different sorts of activities. No one really knew who all the gods were, but you had kind of you know, general categories of gods, and you'd worship a number of different gods. You'd have household gods, and there'd be temple gods, and there'd be earthly gods. They had a whole range of different gods. They were kind of hedging their bets. And the Greeks and the Romans did similar things. They were like, oh, yeah, I need a god for that. Hey, let's just create a new god. I, I meet people today who have got Jesus in their pantheon of gods. That's not uncommon. You, oh, I see you've got Jesus on, the, on, on your cab, on the, on the deck, with other gods. <laughs> Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, I believe in Jesus. He's one of my gods. It's really interesting how Jesus has become kind of a part of the global story. 
It's accommodating Jesus, if you like, into a story that fits. But Arius wasn't committed to pantheism like the Romans or the Greeks or the Egyptians. Arius was committed to monotheism. He, he believed that God was one. And he didn't like the idea that the Trinity was this mystery which seemed to make God more than one. And so he thought, I'll simplify. That's a really good idea. I'm going to simplify the story of God's nature, and we're just going to have one God who's just simply God. And then everyone else has to be created by God, because otherwise, monotheism just doesn't seem to work. He said, the Son is not unbegotten, nor is any way part of the unbegotten. We are persecuted, because Arius was persecuted, because we say that the Son has a beginning and that God is without a beginning. They're actually Arius's words. So Arius is saying that Jesus was not the unbegotten Son of God. That means he, didn't in, he wasn't invested in the nature of God before time, but that God created Jesus as a resolution to a problem. Um, think about that for a minute. I'm sure Arius didn't really connect with the implications that he was suggesting. To us, it's actually like cutting the rope that connects the helicopter to the rescuer again. Jesus is a created being, just like men and angels, and he serves a function. But if he serves a function, he severs love. Another priest in Alexandria called Athanasius could see the problem with Arius' new idea about Jesus, and they fought this theological battle over many, many decades. They were like the top trumps of theologians. They kind of had these great big battles about what Jesus was really all about, who he was, and how the Godhead really, really worked. And Arius had a different idea, which we called homoousianization. Homoousness, which means similar, and ousia, which means essence. Try and say that quickly, and it's very, very difficult. And, and that's what Paul means when he says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus was the exact representation of God's being. Or when Jesus himself says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Now, I know this might seem like a really heavy start tonight. I'm not prone to heavy starts. But I just want to set up for you this idea that actually the battle here is the battle for the divinity of Jesus. That actually Arius is saying, God just created Jesus to fix a theological problem. When actually we have to delve into the reality of the Christian theology to understand that if Jesus was just human, then we're really all disconnected from God. That he's just swimming in the water with us and has no authentic connection with the Father. And yet, if we over-spiritualize Jesus to make him a superhero, we are also lost and disconnected. And so the Christian theology, the heart of Christian theology, is this incredible tension that God is three in one, that he is both God and he became man for our sakes. You know, we should really spend a few weeks uh, discussing the theology of the Holy Trinity. And so um, I thought, let's just simplify it right now um, with something I did with the kids this morning. Let's just make sense of a theology for a minute. So I bought these three Avengers glasses on the internet. Now, are they three or are they one? They're, right, see the conflict in the room straight away. Some people are saying they're one, other people are saying they're three. That's the Trinity right there. I just put that down and I'll walk away. You know, I bought this packet on the internet. Now, that all three of these glasses, there's you know, whenever you try and describe the Trinity, there's always a load of mess. So please don't come up to me afterwards and say, that's an, that was a not entirely correct 
interpretation of the Trinity because we will spend many hours discussing other models which really don't work. But here are three unique glasses which make up one packet. And if I just open this packet up and I separate out these three uh, glasses, I, I'll put them there. That's God, the Father, that's uh, Jesus, the Son, and there we are. That's the power of the Holy Spirit right there. So we've got three in one. That's the Holy Trinity. Now they're all unique and yet they all go together. And what binds them together is the real thing. If we just um, deposit a little bit of the real thing in each of these three glasses, the essence of what makes these three one is not their similarity, it's what they all share, which is what's called the Word, which is the Logos that is with God in the beginning. It says in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And so, in essence, every one of these, if you like, tastes the same. Mm, delicious. The thing is, the essence of God inhabits each one of these unique vessels, that they're all uniquely one, and yet they're all uniquely three. What Arius said was, no, no, no. The essence is all in God. Jesus was created later for function. That is that Jesus was created in order that there might be a sacrifice for the sin of the world. And so Jesus is left out of the equation. And what we're left with is the Holy Spirit, which is obviously subordinate to God and is a vehicle of essence, and yet Jesus is somewhere here as an empty vessel in the family. He's got nothing really of the Godhead within him since he's created. Now, what, what I want you to hold in mind here is that sacrifice is costly. Sometimes you see what is lost to make a good decision rather than look at what is gained. Arius' intention was to explain the relationship with God and Jesus in a way that protects the simplicity of monotheism. This is God, he is full. This is Jesus, he is created. Everything comes top down and ultimately Jesus was an impouring of God's spirit from above. But there's no parity between these two. Aris could see again in making Jesus a temporal being who was begotten or created for a purpose. But actually what Arius did was he put God's very character on trial. You see, at the heart of the Christian gospel is the doctrine of redemption. And that is the means by which we are saved. And it includes more than a simple methodology. It also encompasses a motivation of the heart behind an activity. Imagine this. I come back from a four-day fishing trip. I know, it's hard to imagine. Um, and, and I think to myself, I am a husband. I have an obligation to demonstrate gratitude towards my wife for looking after our three kids on her own uh, for four days. So I go to the flower shop, and I look at the flower shop. Maybe it's the one here on the Fulham Road. It is exorbitantly expensive. I peruse all of the flowers, and as I go along the flower stand, you know, they get smaller and smaller, and then I get to the tulips, which we all know are bad news. And even they are expensive. 
And then I'm thinking, but it's my duty to demonstrate my gratitude towards my wife. And then I noticed that just behind the flower stand, there are those cut-off bits that they use when they're making the bouquets. And I think, I know, I can scoop up some of the cut-off bits and make my own bouquet for free. So I, I, I gather up some of the offcuts into a bouquet, and as I'm passing a park, I find some foliage that I can snap off to kind of bolster the bouquet that I've created. And then I come home with my fishing gear, and I knock the doorbell, and I say, um, hello, and I'm your husband, and um, I have an obligation under the you know, outline rules of matrimony, to demonstrate gratitude to you for the fact that you've looked after my children for four days on your own whilst I've been enjoying myself by the side of a lake. How's it, how's it going to go for me? How, how are we feeling about the outworking of my obligation? Now, I can tell you, there is little chance of me getting across the threshold of my own house if that is the methodology that I'm going to undertake in order to demonstrate my love and affection towards my wife. I mean, let's warm it up a bit. Hello, I am your husband. I am obligated to love you. And therefore, I've brought you this beautiful bouquet, which I've sculpted myself to demonstrate my obligation of love towards you. It's still not going well, is it? You see, the reality is that I fulfilled function but I fulfilled function devoid of love. If you go back into Aris's idea about Jesus being a created being, if God is the creator, what God has done is gone into the garden and picked free flowers in order to pay the price for our sin. See, if it costs God nothing, then we're valueless. If, it costs, if sacrifice costs us nothing, is it really sacrifice? If God creates Jesus as a function to pay a price, yet he is devoid of cost, is God demonstrating real love? Or is he merely fulfilling the mechanics of an obligation which he himself has established? He set the rules. Well, if you sin and you fall short of the glory of God, there needs to be a blood price. So I'm both setting the price and now I've created an answer for free and I'm now resolving a conundrum but does that sit with the nature of who God actually is? Is God a conundrum fixer? Is God a kind of stale bean counter from heaven who thinks, oh, well, there's a way of resolving the problem? Or is God, in fact, a God of love who makes an eternal sacrifice for your and my sake? Jesus, in Arius' view, becomes a device that God's created to resolve the dichotomy of sin. Just like my flowers, he becomes a sacrifice-free means by which I can fulfill my duty as a husband, but a way in which God's love is not really expressed. Now, I'm fulfilling my obligation as a husband towards my wife by buying her flowers and saying thank you. But if my gift is sacrifice-free, then is it really a gift? Think for a minute to those Christmas gifts that I know you've all got stored away somewhere in a cupboard or a drawer. You've received them for free. You dislike them. And yet you've put them in that drawer because you know there will be someone this year who you don't like that much. You will be giving them a free gift that you have received. Why would you do that? Well, you do that because you're going to give them something which is devoid of sacrifice. Sacrifice. 
It's cost you nothing, and so you've given it away for nothing. I know, we're all feeling guilty now. That's why we need this in our lives. Now think for a minute about a person that you love. Would you think about giving away a free gift to the person that you love? Oh, some people are nodding. Yes, I would. Well, let's talk afterwards. Um, But think about someone that you love. What would you sacrifice to demonstrate your love to them? What would you be willing to give them for the sake of love? You see, as soon as I start asking you what would you buy them, you'll start thinking, well, I'd love to buy them something quite expensive. Well, something quite expensive needs quite a significant amount of sacrifice. I was in touch with someone on the weekend who wanted to buy a painting for their wife secretly. It was an amazing gift. I was, thinking, I was hearing about their plan to pay in installments. I was thinking, sure, you can do this. But their plan was, but she really loves this particular picture, and I really want to give it to her. So I've got a plan for how I can get her this picture. When you really love, you instinctively seek to sacrifice. When you think about a Trinitarian God, we think about a God who made sacrifice of himself for the sake of the world. If we want to know what God's love is, it's definitely not free. I grew up in a kind of um, Pentecostal culture, which with kind of orthodox brethren style teaching was quite an interesting kind of union. We kind of grew up with this idea of going around saying, you know, here's some bottled water, Jesus is a free gift. <laughs> you know, here, have some water. It's free. It's a free gift from the church. Or here's some breakfast, it's free. And I remember getting really confused about this idea about this sort of fr- the free gift that we're giving. When actually the free gift that we were giving wasn't free to God. And actually, even if we're receiving a free gift, is it really free? Are we really free? Are we obligation-free as a people? If God loved us and gave himself for us, if his sacrifice was of himself, is it really free? No, it costs God. And is it really free for us to receive? No, it costs us. Jesus says, you know, if you don't pick up the cross and follow me, you don't know me. If you haven't sacrificed mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers for my sake, you don't know me. Actually, the gospel that we carry is a costly gospel. Arius' gospel was actually quite a cheap one. There is a problem, and God can fix it for free. When Athanasius was saying, no, this isn't a free gift. This costs God his very self. Interestingly, God's been speaking about superficial sacrifices for centuries through the prophets, as far back as Cain and Abel. If you remember, God looked on Cain's offering and said, what's this cost you? Whereas he looked at Abel's offering and he saw it was pleasing, not because meat was better than the vegetables, but because the sacrifice that was made had value. In Hosea 6 verse 6, it says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Because the people up to this point had become formulaic about the way in which they related to God. Temple worship was about killing another fatted calf and saying, oh, come on then, God, you know, I've done my duty and I'm walking away from temple. It's not that surprising that Arius had got lost in this whole idea. He was accustomed to temple worship. Go along, pay your money, make God happy, and then walk away again. You know, I know churches like that today. Go along, say your prayers, walk away again, feel great, 
you've done your bit, God is pleased, now you can forget about him and get on with your life. I just want to be really clear, that is not the gospel that we're sharing with you here at St. Dionys Church, and it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a weekday, it's not a Sunday gospel, it's not a temple-style worship, it's not a poor sacrifice, it's a response to a God who first loved us and gave himself for us as an atoning sacrifice for sin. This is a God who gave of himself. If you think about the Trinity, far from being an imbalanced relationship, it was a relationship of three equals, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when God forsake Jesus on the cross, it wasn't an act of abandonment, it was an act of breaking. That this union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be split open for the sake of the world. We believe that God created, not just out of himself, but out of the overspill of creative love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that God is himself a relational God who exists not on his own in the heavens, but exists in relationship with the three parts of his very self. The interpenetrating power of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is like a Catherine wheel in the heavens that spills out creativity and love. And when God gave over Jesus for death in our place, he broke apart the fundament of the relationship that he belonged to because he wanted to extend the circle to you and me. That was not without cost. It was the costliest thing that God could ever choose to do, to sacrifice that relationship for relationship with us. Isaiah 1.11 says, What are your multiplied sacrifices for me without repentance? Says the Lord, I've had enough of your burnt offerings and rams and the fat of your well-fed cattle without your obedience. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats offered without repentance. The Bible's filled with a call to wake up to superficial sacrifice. And if we believe that Jesus was just the man who God created to fulfill the device of the challenge of our sin... We've lost sight of the size of the sacrifice that God made for our sake. And we've actually lost sight of the nature of the character of God himself, who genuinely, absolutely loves us and made the greatest sacrifice in the universe for our sake. Jesus also affirms God's position on sacrifices with stories like the widow's might in Mark 12. That this guy gives tons and tons of gold, but this lady, she gave a couple of copper coins and yet she's given more than all of these other people, because she's given out of herself. She's given sacrificially of herself. Wouldn't it be unconscionable that God would set both the price of redemption and then pick the flowers for free? If Jesus is the created son, then that's a reality. But if Jesus was a genuine son, if he was genuinely part of the Holy Trinity of God, then think about the cosmic ramifications of the Trinity itself being broken apart because God wanted your entry. God wanted your involvement. God wanted your participation. When Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about the reality of that in line with what I've just demonstrated to you with these ridiculous Avengers glasses and Coke. It's like the breaking of a glass. It's the breaking of a unity. It's a breaking of something eternal for the sake of others. At the end of the day, I think you could strip back all of Jesus' incredible miracles, 
all of his incredible teaching, all of the beauty of his nature and his deep compassion without actually compromising the redemption story. The bottom line of our redemption story is not the esteem we carry for Jesus, but the love of God for Jesus and the extent to which Jesus and God are one. Think about that for a minute. What I'm saying is that you could challenge all of the miracles of Jesus and all the teaching of Jesus, but ultimately if Jesus is the Son of God and part of the Trinity, if Jesus died in our place, what's important here is not our esteem of Jesus, but God's esteem of Jesus. He's deciding that he loves us and wants to make that sacrifice for our sake. In his autobiographical book, Miracle on the River Kwai, Ernie Gordon uh, recounts how uh, barbarous treatment by their Japanese captors caused the behavior of prisoners uh, to degenerate. And British prisoners of war were, were starting to be cruel and malicious to one another as they experienced the extreme of, of, of these hostile environments and this horrific treatment. But one afternoon, something terrible happened. And um, shovels were collected in by the slave workers, the British POWs. And they, they would live in cages in the jungle, be then really malnourished, go and work on uh, railways and cuttings throughout the day. They would be given shovels to dig, and then they would uh, count those shovels back in. And a, a Japanese officer in charge of a unit was furious when he counted the shovels because there were only 12 shovels and he had 13 men in his order. And he began to shout at the men to say, where is the shovel and who has stolen the shovel? And all the men began to become unsettled and anxious. And he shouted louder and became more and more angry. And then he said that the person who's stolen the shovel must come forward, otherwise he would begin executing the men until the man who's stolen the shovel would admit his mistake. And one young Scottish officer stepped forward and said, it was me. At that moment, the uh, Japanese commanding officer gave an order, and the man was beaten to death by the shovel of another guard. And they continued their march. The Scottish soldier's body was collected up by the men who had been his uh, mates, they went to a final checkpoint where 13 shovels were counted in. Sacrifice is the ultimate demonstration of love. Now, if we don't give of ourselves, what is a demonstration of love? If God didn't give of himself, why is it a demonstration of love? And yet if God gave of himself, just as that young man gave of himself that day, God gave of himself, then surely we can recognize the extent of his love for us. When Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross, it wasn't a free event. As I said, it's the division of the family of the Trinity. As Paul says in Hebrews 1.3, which we've just read, after he'd provided purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That Jesus came from God and returned to God to reestablish God's family, which is extended to you and me. 
the re-trinitizing of the Trinity in heaven is a mirror to the reunification that sacrifice enables for all who put their trust in Jesus. I know tonight's been filled with some theological terms, but I just want you to connect with the reality of the significance of the love of God and the divinity of Christ. And we talk about holiness and divinity sometimes in abstract terms. And sometimes we struggle with this language of the Trinity. How can God be both Son and be part of the Father at one time? But the key message for you tonight is that Jesus is the unbegotten Son of God, part of God, and God sacrificed that part in order that you might have access to him and become part of that re-trinitized family. I wonder how this message makes you want to respond. I always believed in my personal spiritual history that I've always wanted to mortalize Jesus when I've wanted to escape sacrifice. But I also wonder whether as a church, whether re-engaging with the significance of the divinity of Jesus and the extent of God's sacrifice for us, whether that energy would transform the way in which we choose to worship. It's not a guilt trip. It's not meant to be a pressure, but it is a reality to say we love because he first loved us and made himself an atoning sacrifice for sin. Like unbegotten means something. Unbegotten means that from the beginning of before the beginning of time, you were in the heart of God. And at the beginning, before the beginning of time, God was willing to make a sacrifice of that significance just for you. When you know or when you even sense or can even taste the tiniest fraction of the significance of what God has done for you, I find it draws my heart in. It feels inevitable to long to make some statement in response to a God of love. It makes me say, Lord, how you love me, how I want to express my love to you with great passion. We're going to spend a moment now receiving communion and some words we'll share because we're Anglicans and that's what we do. But in between the words, I'd love you just to press into the idea of the significance of the sacrifice on a cosmic level in a sense that this is a sign that God broke the Trinity and I want you to insert your name in the passage because that's the significance and that's the personal nature of the sacrifice that he made. I'm going to ask Laura and the band to come up. We can spend a moment worshipping while I prepare the table. Just sit here whilst they play and then I will lead you uh, through that meal.